Hi, I'm Derek Jensen. This is Resistance Radio on the Progressive Radio Network. My guests today are Stephanie C., Deanna Meyer, and Leah Keith. Stephanie C. is the media coordinator with the Montana-based Buffalo Field Campaign, the only group working in the field, in the courts, and in the policy arena in defense of the country's last wild migratory buffalo, the Yellowstone population. Deanna Meyer is a longtime environmental activist and is a member of Deep Green Resistance and is also the founder and executive director of Prairie Protection Colorado. Meyer's work currently centers on the protection and preservation of prairie dog communities up and down Colorado's front range. Leah Keith is a radical feminist activist and author of The Vegetarian Myth, Food, Justice, and Sustainability. So first, thank you all for your work, and thank you for being on the program. Thank you. You're very welcome. And yes, thanks. Um, so the first question is, what are grasslands or prairies, and what are the relationships between soil, grass, large ruminants, and burrowers like prairie dogs who do you want to go first any one of you wants to go (laughs) yeah well okay grasslands are any biome where grasses are dominant and that would include about 31 percent of the planet's land mass those are the places where grasses dominate Um, and that includes antarctica there are grasses in antarctica Grasses are tough creatures, um, and they've been at this quite a long time, 120 million years. There have been grasses on this planet. Um, one of the ways that grasses are different from other plants, and this is important to understand uh, if we're going to get to the second part of your question, Derek, um, when you think about most plants, um, where they grow is at the tip. It's at the top of the plant. So, for instance, right now I'm looking outside on uh, at my property, and I can see that there's a lot of pine trees, redwoods, um, and they've all grown this summer about six inches, and there's a bright green tip to every single branch um, on these evergreen trees, and that's this year's growth, and I'm sure they've grown taller as well. And that's where the growth happens is at the very top of the plant, right? That's not true for grasses. The growth point is actually at the base of the plant, and this is because they have evolved with grazers of some kind. The technical term for creatures that eat grass is graminivore, but, you know, we think of them generally as grazers. Um, so if you think about a bison or a cow or a kangaroo or a goose, that's what they eat is grass. And when they eat grass, they don't actually destroy the plant's ability to grow again. In fact, they make the plant stronger. Um, that the action of grazing grasses um, actually stimulates growth in the roots. So you're actually making the plant sturdier by eating it. Um, so you can see that these animals have evolved with these plants and these plants have evolved with these animals because the the, na- the natural action of the animal is actually helping the plant. And this is something we need to understand about the community of life generally. When you evolve together, you do things together. You keep each other alive in ways exactly like that because you've been doing it together for probably millions of years. Um, so one thing that perennial grasses are really good at is building soil. Um, I mean, that's what they do. They pull carbon and methane from the sky and they sequester it. They build soil with it and the building block of soil is carbon. So that's why, for instance, when the European settlers first got to the Midwest, that soil was in places 12 feet deep because for, you know, thousands of years, plants had been doing this. They had been building soil. Um, It's all gone now. (laughs) It didn't take very long to destroy it. Um, but that's what the plants had been doing. And they had been doing it with the animals. And in particular, the keystone ruminant of that 
place is the bison, who are almost entirely gone, but um, that's who did that together. So again, we have to understand how bison work with grasses. So we call them ruminants because they have um, a four-chambered stomach that's called a rumen. And what's going on inside a ruminant is, I mean, we, we watch them from the outside and it looks like they're eating grass. And so, yeah, on one level, they're, you know, chewing the grass, they're biting through it, they're chewing it, and they're swallowing it. But what's actually happening is the, um, the that bison or, or whichever ruminant is not actually eating the grass. They're feeding that grass to the bacteria that lives inside. And they're trading in a very, very poor quality cellulose. That's really what grass is mostly, is just cellulose. Um, and they're feeding it to the bacteria. The bacteria are actually the creatures that can break down the grass. And what the bison is getting out of it is actually very high quality food because it's the protein and fat that are the, the bodies of the bacteria. So it's a really interesting, again, community. Um, and the other thing about grasslands and why this is especially important is that they tend to be places that are very dry. So in the summertime, you know, we all probably have an image of the Great Plains, you know, or the African savanna. It's brown, right, in the summer because there's not a lot of rain. Now, if there was more rain, it would probably be a forest. That's why it's a grassland. And grasses, the other thing they're really good at is, you know, most of their bodies are underground. 75% of the, the bulk of a grass is underground. Um, where it is moist and there's plenty of biological activity still. On the surface of the soil, of course, everything kind of goes dormant in the summer because there's no rain and it's very dry. So all the biological bacteria kind of dries up. But where it stays alive, again, is inside the body of the ruminant. And that bison is carrying around this vast bacterial community inside her, his or her body, right? And so that's what keeps the nutrient cycle moving across all those long, hot, dry summers. Uh, without those bacteria inside the bison, it would basically just turn to desert because there'd be nothing to recycle those nutrients. There'd be no way to break them down. There's nobody to break down that cellulose. And so it would simply just pile up. Um, the mechanical weathering that, that the dead grasses would endure is not enough to break them down in a short enough period of time. And so, you know, what you get is ever-expanding little mini deserts between each plant, and eventually there would just be nothing left. Um, so the bison keep the prairie alive by being a habitat for that bacteria. So you have this incredible cycle, right, where the bison are eating the grass, keeping the bacteria alive inside them. That's a trade-off. They're getting fed by the bodies of the bacteria, at the other end comes moisture, right, the urine, and then, you know, some nutrients as well. And so that actually helps, you know, across the summer, that actually provides some moisture for the rest of the living community. Um, and then, of course, you know, you have apex predators like humans or whoever. Some of them are the bison are going to get eaten by people or by bears or by wolves. Um, but eventually, you know, we all die and we get reabsorbed into the soil and broken down again by that biological activity. Um, but without, if one one of those beings is taken out of that cycle, everything degrades to desert. You, you have to have every part of that for the whole thing to keep moving. And so that's what life is, is these very complex relationships between, you know, all kinds of different creatures, but all of them together make that web of life. They're the ones that keep it going around. And we can add in prairie dogs, we can add in all the other animals and plants that are part of that biotic community. But, 
you know, just that's a short version of how they all need each other and the roles that they each play. So do either of you, Stephanie or Deanna, want to add to that? I, this is Stephanie. I can't touch that. I just learned a lot. <laughs> I mean, I guess with the Buffalo, too, migration is another one of their gifts as far as helping to maintain and create the prairies and grasslands and, you know, tilling the, the soil with the hooves, uh, seeds getting caught in their fur, they're wallowing. That creates a habitat, temporary aquatic habitat for amphibians and birds and other, other species. Um, and of course, their their poop which is like gold on the on the landscape but uh yeah i just that was great Lear. thank you and yeah and uh, it just made me think in listening to it of how it makes me so sad because i look at everything now and i think about even what the effect is of say the meadows where i live who are now are populated with timothy you know grass and that isn't nearly as sturdy as those native grasses were that had you know most of their 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 bodies underneath the soil and um just to add with the prairie dogs in learning a lot about them it's amazing to learn how much they also uh, contribute to bringing up minerals into those grasses and how they free the water tables so that when the moon the moon actually pulls the groundwater up and down through the holes of the prairie dogs and the voles and all different kinds of burrowing animals and how essential that is for you know for rain and for life in general and for the nutrients so that it, they are made available for the plants which give them to the bison and to the other the antelope and the other grazers so it's just amazing and thank you for that too Lear because I learned a lot from hearing that but it's just amazing how everything is so connected and it's just hurts so bad to think about how long it took for all of our you know all of these different living communities to be healthy and how fast that health has just been annihilated and people used to know this like this was observable to anyone who cared to understand. And what that means is you have to, you have to look at all the creatures around you and have some level of respect for them to think, this is somebody who can teach me something. What do they know? What do they do? What is their role in all of this? You know, that it, that it matters. Like that we see these other creatures as beings who deserve respect. And I, I'm reminded here of there, there was this very famous story in 1950 when um, the U.S. government wanted to get rid of a whole bunch of prairie dogs um, because supposedly they were destroying, you know, whatever. And it's these always these ridiculous excuses, right? But it was near the Navajo reservation, and the Navajo elders literally said, if you kill all the prairie dogs, there will be no one to cry for the rain. And they were exactly right. It's the prairie dogs that bring the rain. Right, but of course the scientists had no. They they didn't. They just thought it was silly. Like this is some ridiculous folk tale. Why would we pay attention to this? So they killed all the prairie dogs, and what the Navajo said came true completely. Like all they had was you know solid packed soil that couldn't absorb any rain, and then there's just fierce runoff and this devastating erosion, and you know all of the things that the Navajo knew because they had lived in respect with these creatures for hundreds, thousands, whatever you know, however long they were living together. It was a relationship of respect, and they were able to observe. Like, when we have prairie dogs, we have rain. When there are no prairie dogs, something goes wrong with the water table, right? So this is what happens when we don't understand and respect those relationships. And it's terrifying to me because we're talking about keystone species in, you know, there's this vast swath of the continent 
that's all gone, right? It's less it's less than one tenth of one percent of the original tall grass par- prairie remains. Less than one percent, one tenth of one percent. Like that's the tiniest little number. And the, just the number of animals that used to live there. There were maybe as many as forty million pronghorn antelope. There were ten million elk. There were ten million mule deer. There were two million mountain sheep. We've got the sixty million bison that are gone. And somewhere in the neighborhood of five billion prairie dogs. I cannot even imagine that many animals. The largest prairie dog colony that was ever recorded had um, 400 million prairie dogs on it. It was 250 miles, this prairie dog town in Texas. And they're all gone. And I've been, I've been thinking of some math um, over the last week as I've been thinking about this interview. And... If we have, so Stephanie, how much does the average adult, uh, buffalo weigh? Um, a mature bull weighs 2,000 pounds, mature female around 1,800. Okay, so if we have 60 million buffalo, and let's just say they weigh, and including calves, let's say they weigh an average of 1,000 pounds, just to make the math easy, that's 60 million times, uh, 10 is 600 million, times 106 billion, wait, wait, 60 million, 60 billion pounds of, of meat. Is that not correct? If you have 60 million buffalo and they each weighed 10 pounds, that would be 600 million pounds. If they weighed 100 pounds, that's 6 billion. So 60 billion pounds of meat. And if they live an average, once again to make the math easy, an average of 10 years each, that's 6 billion, yeah, back down to 6 billion pounds of meat. Six million pounds of dead buffalo every year to be eaten by somebody, and there's just the the biomass here is just stunning. The the amount of food for everybody else, and there's one more thing I want to throw in, which is um, in the 19th century there was and and prior to that there was a an insect called the Rocky Mountain locust, and there was one famous sighting in 1875 that was. 198,000 square miles of locusts. Uh, they weighed 27.5 million tons and consisted of 12.5 trillion insects. That's the greatest concentration of animals that has ever, ever speculatively existed, according to the Guinness Book of World Records. And less than 30 years later, the species was extinct. And that, that's because of plowing and because of destroying the prairie. And my point is that this is just a lot of biomass that has been um, taken away. I mean, if you have all those prairie dogs, that's a lot of a lot of a lot of biomass, a lot of meat running around. And if you have all these locusts, that's a lot of meat running around. There's just, I mean, the prairie seems to be starving. And now I'll shut up and let you take that. Yes, and where it all went was into the atmosphere. So here we are with global warming. Um, all tillage systems contribute to global warming. That's what they do. They take stored carbon in the ground, that's literally the soil, and they add oxygen by tilling, and that causes all the organic matter to decay, and it releases this vast amount of carbon. And this is why, um, little known fact, yes, year 1800 to now, there's been this you know dramatic rise in carbon. Everybody knows the hockey stick graph and all that. But if you back that graph up about 10,000 years, we actually added as much carbon to the atmosphere in that first 10,000 years as we did in the last 200 years. 
And what happened 10,000 years ago was the beginning of agriculture. So yes, I mean, certainly fossil fuel has been a huge accelerant to that because it only took 200 from 1800 to now. But we began this 10,000 years ago and we, we began doing it by releasing all that carbon by destroying soil is what we did. And that's, that's where we are now. So all the, uh, you know, there's all kinds of uh, measurements that they take that will show this, that it's, you know, there's just been this huge, just slow, steady, rather, rather large amount of carbon has been added to the atmosphere because of agriculture. And the, the particular bump was rice agriculture is one of the worst. Um, and that especially adds a lot of methane because of the, the water that's used in uh, growing rice in patties and whatnot. But the point really is that all of that, that incredible lush amount of life that was here literally was just vaporized and it's been turned into just atmospheric, um, you know, disruption. That's, that's where it all went. So I've interviewed just, the three of you. I'm sorry, go ahead, please. No, no. I was just gonna, it, it just it makes me always think like about how detrimental our story is of who we are, you know. I mean, because that, that since 10,000 years and especially in the last 200 years, to be able to even conceive of what has been lost and the means by which it was done is just the whole like idea of the ignorance of all of us believing or this culture believing that these creatures and the land and the grasses and the buffalo and the prairie dogs and the birds and the locusts and the insects have nothing to teach us and that we're the ones who are going to show them is just I mean, it just, I can never wrap my mind around the fallacy of that type of understanding. That's all that came to my mind. Oh. The, one of the, one of the reasons I wanted to interview, I've interviewed you each three individually, and I, I, one of the reasons I wanted to interview you together is because I was hoping that this interview would be, um, that you could manifest in this interview what the buffalo grasses and, um, prairie dogs and others manifest in 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 the real life and so can you talk more about not and you've done this some but can you talk more about the interactions between the different uh species and not just these species but um I know Lier you mentioned the other day that uh Gopher tortoises perform a similar role to prairie dogs in the American Southeast. And how many species did you say are dependent on gopher tortoises for burrows? I think it was 200. It might have been 400. It was a lot. And it's and because they, they don't dig their own burrows. They have, literally have no home without those tortoises. So, 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 so Deanna, can you talk a little bit about the creatures who would, who would, you've talked about rain, can you talk about some of the beings who would, who would not have homes without prairie dogs? Yeah. And also so the ones about, who would not have food without prairie dogs, because, because presumably right. badgers would go hungry without them. Yes. And they also use them for their shelters too, they borrow their burrows, but, um, the, the ones that are absolutely like connected to them are the ones we're seeing that are just about gone, which are the black-footed ferrets who are critically endangered, and that's a sad story in itself because the ones that are left have been just put in a program and they've been interbred with the same family over and over and over, and they get, you know, the, they're, they're pretty much in bad shape genetically, which is <laughs> to put it mildly, but that's because they cannot live without prairie dogs. They're 98% 
um, dependent on them as a food source and for their shelter. Um, black widows, spiders, snakes, reptiles uh, use their burrows. Bunnies, all kinds of different creatures depend on their burrows for existence. You know, all the birds and the raptors and the eagles, the golden eagles, they all switch from their food source from summer to winter from streams and rivers to prairie dog colonies. Um, you know, this is when <laughs> there was fish in our creeks and rivers. Um, and, you know, just so 180 different phrygenous hawks, there's, uh, burrowing owls absolutely need prairie dogs and they're also criti- they're, they're threatened and of course they should be critically endangered. But, um, they are, they suffer very much when prairie dogs go away. They need their burrows and they use their burrows for, um, flat, for having babies and for raising their families. And um, just the whole prairie system, really, it's 180, they say, but it's probably more, depend upon and need prairie dogs to have a healthy community um, that builds upon each other and feeds each other. And certainly the buffalo, which um, Stephanie could talk about, too, in terms of, you know, buffalo, prairie dogs go where buffalo are and vice versa. They keep the grass nice and nutrient-rich and the buffalo keep it clipped because prairie dogs like to have clip grass and taller grasses so they can see predators. It helps them a lot. So, yeah, they're very, like they call them the keystone species. And uh, somebody referred to them once as the candy bars of the prairies. Um, and then I've also heard and, and believe, too, like the prairie dogs and the buffalo are the bookends of the prairie. They're the two ends that hold up the rest of the features. And without those two, you lose a variety of everybody. Very well said. And did you want to talk more about um, the relationship between buffalo and different species? You mentioned that a little bit. Yeah, I mean, you know, buffalo, they're also, as well as being a keystone species, they're an umbrella species, kind of meaning if they're doing okay, then everybody in that community is going to do okay. Um, I mean, it's hard to to know because the last remnant population is, is holed up, locked in Yellowstone, and so they're not wild buffalo out on the prairies like they, sh- they should be. But one animal in particular who has a very strong connection to the buffalo, which is getting stronger, is the grizzly bear. Yellowstone grizzly bears, uh, thank goodness they got reinstated with Endangered Species Act protection um, just last week, which was a big victory. But they are, they've been under ESA protection for 40 years. And they have evolved with buffalo for hundreds of thousands of years. And because of climate change, their food sources are diminishing. Um, and so they're turning more and more towards eating more meat from buffalo, from elk, from buffalo in particular. So in the springtime, after the harsh winters um, take lives of buffalo, when the grizzly bears wake up, they depend on finding that meat. And with the with the loss of you know, army cutware moths, uh, the white bark pine nuts, and the Yellowstone cutthroat trout, um, buffalo are becoming more critical for them. And yet Yellowstone rounds up and captures and kills hundreds of buffalo every year, removing that biomass from the landscape. Um, so, yeah, I mean, grizzly bears are probably the most important uh animal as far as who the buffalo are feeding right now, a non-human. And then, of course, we have to look at all the buffalo 
uh, cultures, indigenous people who are sick and so many people dying from diabetes because they don't have buffalo in their diets anymore. And that's the food that they evolved with also. Um, so those are, those are two, two people that, that uh, come to mind most significantly with the buffalo. But, I mean, they feed everybody. When, when they die, you know, magpies, ravens, crows, eagles, coyotes, wolves, grizzly bears, everybody gets to eat. Um, so they're, they're a huge gift, and with their absence, a lot of others are suffering as well. I remember reading an account from, I think it was the 1830s, uh, from the, it was down in Texas, saying that they saw um, packs of 200 or more wolves together, that th- that would be a, a pack that would hang out. And um, it would seem to me that the only way that can happen is if they have access to tremendously abundant food sources. It's like when you see the, the Kodiak bears near the, um, near the salmon streams. The reason they can all gather like that is because there's a, just a shed load of food. And right. it's the same with the, the buffalo. I want to go back to the math I was doing a little while ago. And if you have six billion pounds of dead buffalo every year spread across the Great Plains, that's a lot of food for grizzly bears, for and I'm presuming that most of that is actually ends up being eaten by insects, who are the you know the great recyclers of the of the planet, and and then returned into grasses. Can you talk about? Can any of you talk about the relationship? Talk more about. You mentioned the candy bars. Can you talk more about the relationship, perhaps, between um, all of these dead creatures and then the soil? Well, that's really what soil is, right? It's dead plants and dead animals that have been acted upon by, you know, increasingly smaller creatures until eventually you get down to the bacteria. And they're the ones who are really doing the basic work of life because they're the ones who ultimately liberate um, all of those nutrients into a small enough package that the rest of us can then reuse it. Um, so without those, you know, the, without the bacteria of the soil, we're all dead. It's none of us can do that. We're, they are the only ones that can do that for us. So all the nutrient cycles would just grind to a halt without the bacteria. And the thing to remember about soil is how very alive it is. Like one tablespoon of soil. You think about a tablespoon, right? That can contain over a billion different living creatures. A billion creatures. Now extend that out over, you know, 2,000 miles, 12 feet deep. Like just the amount of life that was here once. And it's mostly all gone. I mean, we it all got traded in for corn and wheat and 40 million really sick cows. Like, all of those animals and all of those plants that really, as a, as a cycle, as a community, could have gone on until the sun burned out. And, and for what? It's I mean, the place is being utterly desertified, and nobody's even happy. Like, it's, I mean, it's a really, the ones, the animals that are left are really sick. Like, those 40 million cows are incredibly sick. They're not having good lives, and they make food that's not particularly good for people. And all of it for what, you know? I, like, it doesn't even make any sense on the surface of it. Like, all of those creatures that I mentioned, the 10 million elk, the 40 million pronghorn, 2 million mountain sheep, 60 million bison, like, they're all gone. It's just, like, millions and millions traded in for this tiny little collection of sick cows. Like, it doesn't even make any sense. Well, let's talk about land productivity, because people talk about how... 
um, agriculture increased production. And if we just look at these numbers that you just said, there's, again, and let's exclude humans from this picture for a moment, um, because some of the biomass has been turned into humans, but this is, this is actually, the prairies are actually much less productive now than they were when they were functioning. Any of you can take that. Well, yeah, I mean, it's, <laughs> I'm sitting here trying to wrap my, like I always do, because, it, it, and I'm sure all of us feel this on this call, how sad and devastating this whole reality is. Um, because, of course, I mean, every, the, the, I, I, I always wonder, you know, we always talk about, there's this many, there was this many, there was this many. Well, we know that it was way different than life is now, and that the plants and everybody worked together, and, then we have this big monster who comes in and eats up everything as fast as possible and destroys that 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 relationship between everybody. And watching now, so I mean, just like in in what I'm seeing now, which is absolutely devastating, are the prairie dog colonies that are left up and down the front range, which is being gobbled up fast, really fast. Because now we're down, we've pushed down to like what Lier said, the one tenth of one percent of what we have left of our grasslands. That number right there should scare anybody. And then when you see these little, you can see it and driving up and down, like even when Stephanie came and visited me, you see these little tiny one or two acre lots, and you all have seen it, Derek, we are, with these prairie dogs that are crammed in there, and they look like they're just in a very bad situation. They don't have their community at all anymore, and they've got this, they are, they are having to learn how to deal with uh no grasslands, right, with just like dirt and how do they survive off of weeds, how do they eat bindweed, how do they do all that, and they do, they manage to do it. But to see that um, broken, the broken web of life and to see the lack of birds and the lack of grasses and the lack of just living communities anywhere is such a loss that it's just so hard to even be able to put it in words and to express how horrifying that is and then to be able to even use our imaginations to understand what was here because I don't think we could ever even conceive of how important that was. And I think that's our problem too, is that we, that this culture refuses to understand the enormous significance and uh, beauty of that community and how that community is what gave us this, uh, you know, responsibility and gift of living. And then how this culture also views the prairie dogs that still exist and the buffalo, the wild ones that still exist, that they're too many. As if. And they're vermin, they're diseased, they're, they need to all die. And that's the basic attitude of the culture, of our, what are the mother culture just r ripping up everything. Even the little tiny remnants that are alive need to be poisoned. It's just this level of hatred that I've never, I just have never been able to wrap my mind around. They just hate every living thing. Like I just can't figure it out. Why? I mean, yeah, half of the stuff is so cute anyway. Like, how can you hate a prairie dog? <laughs> and then you have, like, you know, super majestic creatures like bison and wolves. Like, how can you hate them? They're so amazing. And then they just do. Like, everything has to die. And then what are we going to be left with? We're all going to starve with no oxygen. Like, it doesn't even make any sense. No. You know, I think about... Um, I was just this morning thinking about uh, passenger pigeons and how there were more passenger pigeons than every other bird in North America combined. And um, we've all read the stories of them being in flocks so large they would darken the sky for days at a time. And how many creatures like that 
have to be driven extinct. They were driven extinct by this culture. And I mentioned the Rocky Mountain locust, and they were driven extinct. And, you know, we went from 60 million bison down to a minimum of, what was it, 100 or however many? And there were like 23 or so that saved themselves. And they saved themselves. And They saved themselves. <laughs> and one of the things that I don't understand is that we consider the ability to recognize patterns as one sign of sentience. And how do we consider ourselves a sentient species when, you know, we can just list off being after being like this, whether it's the the Mekong catfish or the Eskimo curlew or, you know, these, these, these beings with these unimaginable, the great banks of cod, and they're they're just run through, and people somehow still think that that this can continue. I, I don't. I, this boggles my mind that we consider ourselves a sentient species in the face of this. Yeah, I don't really have. <laughs> so, <laughs> so actually, speaking of sentience, there's a different direction I want to go for a moment. Speaking of sentience, we've talked about their importance for uh, their importance for prairies and their their their. Um, their interconnectedness with other beings, but uh, can we talk for a moment about, uh, you know, there's still this human supremacism that really runs the culture, and can we talk about, even on, even on sort of human terms, the intelligence of prairie dogs and the intelligence of buffalo and the intelligence of grasses? Can you talk about their ability to communicate, uh, their ability to to show affection, whatever? Can you, can you just run with those any direction you want to? Well, Let's certainly. start with prairie dogs. Okay. Well, with the prairie, prairie dogs are so amazing. I just don't understand how anybody could sit and look at prairie dogs for even a short amount of time of five minutes and just look at them and, and deny that they don't have these immense feelings. Like I had these uh, pictures that I took last year, and I just reposted them again on our page of this mom and her baby. And they, she had her on the ground tickling her. They were kissing. They were hugging. It was all very obvious that they were very um, interconnected and if you sit out and look at a colony like the one that I have up at my place luckily um, you can if you just you can hear all of them communicate with each other and if a bird flies by you can hear the sirens and all of them get in their positions and they all um, pay very close attention to each other they have little groups of uh, families their coteries um, some of them hate each other, some of them love each other, you know, and they have rules, like if there's a predator, anybody can dump down into anybody's burrow, but only if there's a predator, and if you, you know, they're not allowed to do that on um, non-threatening uh, times, you can't just go into anybody's burrow, you have to go into your own, they have territorial lines, I mean, and they are there, and they all together care very much about the entire, all of the coteries, and they all, all kind of watch out for each other. And you see the personalities, and I mean, it, it's something that would be very important for people if they were going to pay attention ever again to realize and learn about community, because we're not doing the greatest job about of community with any of our, you know, living uh, non-human or our, each other either. I mean, it's in the the state of disrepair that we're in in terms of community and of getting along and being able to even those of us who care and passionately love these animals and want to do what it takes to save them, we have a very hard time working together without getting involved in drama because we have forgotten what community is and what the importance is. And the importance is is to have responsibility and protect life. 
And it seems to me that when you watch prairie dogs, if you just do it with an open mind, that they will teach you that if you pay some attention to that. I think so the same about- definitely can be said for the buffalo, and, and that's that's what they have done for us. I mean, we live together there in the land where they live, and we learn so much from them about how to be good family members and take care of each other. And, I mean, it's it just always feels stupid to me to even have to talk about this, you know? I mean, of course they love their life as much as we love ours. Of course they love their children and their brothers and their grandmothers as much as we love ours. It's just insane to even have to discuss it. But, I mean, you know, Buffalo, also they have, they have mourning ceremonies. When a comrade is shot or is dying or dies, they come, even bones to bones and gut piles. They come and they have these crazy, intense ceremonies where they're m- circling and circling and making these really intense sounds, and then they eventually move on. They pay their respects and move on. But it feels so silly to even have to talk about that and of course moms and calves with their deep bonds you know during the times when there would be these crazy hazing operations which involve state and federal and local agencies um cops and cowboys helicopters horse people chasing these buffalo out of montana into yellowstone moms and calves getting separated moms breaking off running after their babies calves getting orphaned and i think there i did i told you that story that one time about the big hazing operation on Horse Butte where a calf, we found an orphan baby girl a few days later. And we were like, the only way she's going to survive is if she gets to another group of buffalo. They will adopt other calves. And we we thought we might be able to try to to help her out, but we, we were failing. And all of a sudden, we turned around, and at the top of the Butte were these two females, adult females, looking exactly where she had ran into these woods. And so we were like, let's get out of there. They're coming straight for her. And they did. And they found her. And they were both pregnant. She was not even their calf. And they came from the whole complete other side of this tremendously big butte. How did they know? They knew. And they found her. And they took her in. And another thing that happened just this spring, we were with uh, an adult female who was pregnant. And she was dying. She was trying to give birth. And she couldn't. And we were with her, I mean, with her. And as we sat with her, different groups of buffalo came to pay their their respects, to check on her, to see what was going on. And in the end, this one solitary female came and bedded down next to her as she drew her last breath. I mean, there's so many things you could talk about, so many things. And, again, it just makes me insane that we even have to (laughs) have that kind of discussion, you know? Right, and it makes me think, too, like with Lierre, because you know more about the grass system, but I always think about, or not system, the grass community. I always think about, like, the trees and the grasses, too, and these animals are, you like, it's stupid to even talk about if you ever paid attention, but people, you know, the grasses and the trees and, uh, you know, and all of the plants and the bacteria and the soil and everybody kind of gets ignored really bad. I mean, they probably have the worst uh, lack of, of love from this human community than anybody because people can't even pay attention to the fact of the love that we see between mammals. So I'd like to hear more about what you think about the grasslands and how they communicate and love each other because that's something that people don't pay attention to. Well, plants generally are really good at taking care of the whole community. So, for instance, if you know somebody's getting attacked by an insect, 
um, they'll send out the chemical signals. That's how they communicate. They don't make words like we do, but they send out chemical messages. So they'll send out chemical messages saying, oh, I'm getting attacked, and everybody else in the local community then can start immediately producing insecticides um, in, in their own bodies to help drive off whatever they're getting eaten by. Um, but they'll also send help through their root system to the plant that's being attacked. They'll send those chemicals so that this plant, you know, has a, a chance to at least fight off, you know, who's ever attacking. Um, and they, they will do these kinds of things for each other all the time. And it's, you know, it's only when we recognize that, you know, it's possible to find sentience in plants that we're going to find it. Because up until that point, of course, everybody's like, well, they're just insensate salads. Why would you care? It's just grass. But, you know, once scientists actually started to look into, well, if they did communicate, how would it be? And what does it mean? And that's when you find out that it really is a community where they're all communicating. They're helping each other. They're, you know, telling each other that there's a problem. They're, you know, sending each other supplies when they need them. Um, you know, and then a lot of the, the really deep-rooted perennial plants, they perform functions that nobody else can. So, you know, their roots are deep enough that they can actually break up the rock that's, you know, the sort of the, the, the bottom layer, you know, beneath the soil is rock. And those plants are able to, to break that up. And then they can bring the minerals to the surface of the soil in their own bodies. And that's where the rest of us get those minerals. I mean, you and I cannot eat rock, but the plants can do it. And so that's how we get them ultimately. Um, so there's a, there's a lot of, I mean, just amazing things like that. It's also they, you know, during the really dry season, it's, it's, that's, you know, where all the activity is, where all the water is, is under the soil, but it's really the, it's the action of the plants that keep even a little bit of the water, you know, sort of coming up. And so, you know, when other animals wander through and eat a plant that even if it's a really dry plant, there's at least some water in it. So they are, you know, you could, I don't know what, what word to use, but donating themselves, sacrificing themselves, you know, who knows, but there's, you know, there's water in their bodies that, that keeps everybody else alive. So it's, it, I mean, we're all in it together, right? And that, I think, is the wisdom that's been lost. Mm. It's interesting, too, that nobody, I've never heard anybody anyway call plants or grasses keystone species. Right, and they're um, it. <laughs> yeah, 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 that's pretty insane, isn't it? Mm-hmm. You know what I wish is I wish that we could do this interview again and add somebody who loves insects the way mm-hmm. that that all of you love your respective the ones you're talking about and mm-hmm. and add somebody else who loves uh poop <laughs> because you know you There's have someone six, out there sixty million buffalo. That's going to be a lot of poop, yeah. which leads us directly <laughs> to insects because insects are going to be one of the main eaters of that. And then that's going to lead us to birds uh, because they're going to be eating the insects. And then that's going to lead us to who eats meadowlarks? Uh, hawks. And then the hawk dies and then it gets eaten by insects and then et cetera, et cetera. You know, keep How going. scary is it, the insect? I mean, the, I always think like when I was a kid, because that's the only reference I have is like during my lifetime, when we would drive into Denver or any time we'd drive at this time of year and through the summer, our windshields would be so smeared with dead bugs that right. we had to scrub them all the time. And now there's not one ever, ever. There's no smash bugs on any windshield ever. That, to me, is just so scary and, and terrible. Yeah, I started to notice that about a decade ago, and it became very apparent to me maybe five years ago. I never, never 
have to get dead bugs off my windshield. And it used to be just a feature of life when I was a kid. And it is terrifying. Yeah. So we have about three or four minutes left. And um, I would like, I'm, I'm not particularly known for ending on happy notes, um, but I would like for the three of you to describe um, how grasslands could, and prairie dogs, and buffalo, and everybody else could come back. What would that, what would that look like, and what would the process, processes involve, including obviously starting with um, stopping destroying them? But we're going to take that for granted for a moment. This is Stephanie. As far as the buffalo go, and it's it's so simple. Just leave them alone, and they will restore themselves. They will walk their ancient paths again. They're trying to do that year after year after year. And if we get out of the way, they're going to go, and they're going to restore themselves throughout their native range. And, you know, they can take down fences. They can do that, and we can help them out. And, I mean, it's just that simple. Just stand back. Yeah, and yeah, I'd say the same thing. Let them, I mean, and Lear can probably talk to that too, but at the same we need to also educate our women and uh, talk about our populations too and to be able to, like she said, instead of managing land, managing, I mean, that's what everything's based on. We have wildlife refuges. They have to be managed to death. We have, like, any public lands that are managed to death. Stop managing, which managing is just killing let go and then deal with, uh, you know, the whole issue of, uh, you know, stopping the destruction. For, you know, we're, uh, like we always talk about, we need resistance. We need serious people to resist and, because if we don't stop the destruction, I don't know what we're going to do. We're going to be gone. And so what the, the main thing that, I mean, there's a lot of people who care very passionately about what is happening to our planet, but in my experience, they don't understand the nature of the problem fully. It's all like, well, we're just, it's just greed or something. That's not actually it, though that is certainly part of it. Um, the nature of the problem is actually agriculture. That is where the wound begins because it is an inherently destructive process. It's biotic cleansing. It means taking over an entire continent or two or three or four and just growing humans on it. And so we have to stop doing that. We never had a right to do it. It has destroyed everything. It's destroyed the planet. It's destroyed the atmosphere. It's destroyed human society. It's given us militarism and colonialism and patriarchy and slavery. And it also destroyed our health. So there's really no reason to continue this. So if we stop the war that is agriculture and simply let the grasses come home, they will fix it. The grasses and the bison and everybody else who comes along will know how to fix it. All we have to do is stop destroying it. And the stupidest thing in all of this, we'd actually have more food. Right. Well said. That's the craziest part of all of this. Mm-hmm. Well, is there is there anything else that any of you want to say on anything about grasslands? I just hope they. Oh, I know one thing is a positive thing. It's that looking when I'm feeling really down and low, and which is often. Um, I think anybody who recognizes reality, I look at the grasslands and the buffalo and the prairie dogs, and the, especially where I am, the prairie dogs, and I say, holy, I mean, they are still, they are resilient. 
and they will they can come back. I mean, you look at rocky flats and these new these really bad waste sites where more wildlife, Chernobyl, whatever, if it's left alone and people have reserved it for wildlife and, you know, the way that they do, these animals are, can heal. So that, that, if I agree to that, like if we step back and the, it, and so I can feel some optimism there knowing that bacteria and grasses and the prairie dogs and the buffalo, they have, they know what to do. Mm-hmm. And if we can just stop, I, you know, when I'm feeling like it's all over, there's no way anything's going to turn around, we, we have no idea because these healers, that's what they are, and they're still here. And that's pretty miraculous. You know, there's years ago, a, a very smart Anishinaabeg woman wrote to me about my comments about hope and how um, we need to give up on, I say we need to give up on hope because hope is a longing for a future condition over which you have no agency. And she wrote to me and said, there, there's true, but there is a role for hope because she said, if, if all you do is hope that salmon survive, then that sort of hope or prayer is really obscene if that's all you're doing. But once you take out the dams and you stop industrial logging and stop industrial fishing, then you have to hope that the river accepts your offering. Mm-hmm. And so it's the same thing that if we just hope that buffalo survive and we don't stop the impediments to their survival that is an obscenity but if we if we remove the obstacles to their survival then we have to pray that the buffalo accept that offering and that they act on it does that make sense yes come help me take down the stevens creek trap in yellowstone <laughs> <laughs> yes so um, I would like to thank you so much for all of your work, and I would like to thank listeners for listening. My guests today have been Stephanie C., Deanna Meyer, and Lear Keith. This is Derek Jensen for Resistance Radio on the Progressive Radio Network. <laughs>